Would you please stand with me, if you are able, for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 20. It's verse 13. And I'm going to ask you to read the verse with me in its entirety. <laughs> I'll give you a minute to get ready, because it's quick. Together, you shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good morning. It's like a little ritual. My name is Brad, and uh, welcome if you're joining us on our live stream, and thank you for joining us here in the tent. If it's your first time at Grace, I'm, I'm so grateful that you could be with us. Uh, you're joining us right in the middle of a sermon series that uh, we have uh, been in on the Ten Commandments, and uh, we've reached today the sixth word. We've been calling the, the series Ten Words to Live By, and today the sixth word, you shall not murder. It's the shortest commandment. Actually, uh, you could argue that it's tied for shortest because the next one is four words too, you shall not steal. But in Hebrew, um, the sixth word is actually only two words. Two words long, you shall not murder. Uh, on the face of it, I would say probably most of us gathered here online or in the tent. I can't speak for everyone, but I would say on the face of it, most of us could say something to the effect of, this commandment I have kept my whole life. I am a not murderer. But uh, a response like that or a posture like that, right? This commandment I have kept my whole life is actually the same kind of response that uh, the, the Gospels tell us people who are noted as a rich young man or the teachers of the law or the Pharisees. That, that's the sort of posture that people took with Jesus when they said, you know, tell me what the greatest commandment is so that I know that I'm justified. And then the rich young man says to Jesus, this commandment, all of the commandments I have kept my whole life. And yet, when you dig into those passages, if you spend time looking at how Jesus interacted with those kinds of folks, you quickly discover that he confronts people and rebukes people for keeping the letter of the law while neglecting the purpose of the law or the heart, God's heart behind the law. Jesus might confront us and say that while being a not murderer, maybe you ought to have done uh, and, and, and pursued God's heart behind this statement rather than just the letter of the law. He would say, have done that without neglecting the weightier matters of the law, which is what he says in Matthew 23. The truth is, uh, that there is some debate, even in our translations, if you brought your own Bible and you read along with the passage, there's some, there's some debate about what's included in that word. What, when the Hebrew says murder, what's, what's involved there? My, my Bible has a, a footnote that says it may or may not include uh, the causing of human death through carelessness or neglect. And of course, every culture has struggled and debated with uh, what is murder. 
right? What, what, what's included? Are we talking about first-degree murder, or does this include, you know, involuntary manslaughter and all the rest? Uh, and so, in the interest of getting toward an understanding of God's heart behind this sixth word, this little two-word passage in Hebrews, um, I want to go to a couple of other places in the Scripture. I want to ask the Scripture a couple of questions. I want to ask, what is murder? What's, what are we talking about here? And so we're going to go uh, to the very beginning of the Bible and uh, in the, the fourth chapter of Genesis and examine the, the story of the very first taking of a human life account in Scripture. And then I want to ask, how do you get there? How, how is it that someone uh, like you or me arrives at a place? What's the process in which uh, you arrive at a place where you're willing to take someone else's life. We're going to ask, what's happening? What is God talking about when he forbids this thing? What is so rebellious and so contradictory to God's heart about the taking of human life? And we want to do that for lots of reasons, but I think most importantly so that we can start to recognize uh, the fact that we have this, th those same seeds in all of our hearts that uh, we might start to recognize the, the, the seeds of murder in our hearts before we give them time to grow and bear disastrous fruit. Uh, whether or not that ever actually means literally taking someone else's life. And so this morning, and the sixth word, murder, what is it? And murder, how does it happen? What is it? Let me read um, first from Genesis chapter 4. Uh, and we'll find the first uh, account, the first tragic account of the taking of human life. Here's Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We'll read uh, about 10 verses. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. These words from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. The story of the first murder in Scripture is a sibling rivalry. It's not, not, it's not even enemies killing each other, as it were. It's not a business deal gone bad or something in the underbelly of society. It's two brothers, which I think is significant. It says something about the nature of every murder that has ever been committed, but I'm going to come back to that. Before uh, we think about that, uh, 
it makes me think about my own brothers. I'm one of four boys, so I have three brothers, and they are three of the men on earth who I love most in the world. And they are probably also the only men that I can say with complete honesty that I have actually considered planning to take their lives. <laughs> At some point in my childhood, I literally remember weeping in the bathroom with my mother and saying to her in total seriousness, Mom, I am going to kill him. <laughs> Imagine these two boys' moms. Imagine Eve in all of this. Now first, she's the first woman ever to give birth, right? Everyone before her has been created ex nihilo, right? From nothing. God said, let there be, and there was. And now imagine something starts happening to your body, right? That's that never happened to anyone else's body before. And oh, it's without historical precedence. You don't have anybody to ask about it. And then you don't understand what's going on. And at the end of the whole awful ordeal... Into existence comes another man, <laughs> right? It's miraculous. And she says, I have gotten a man with the help of God, with the help of the Lord. And what's more, in the context of that, we, we can look back at the previous chapter, which is the fall, the coming of sin into the world in Genesis chapter 3, and be reminded that just previous to this, God had made a covenant with her, in which she said that a son of hers, a male offspring of Eve, would come into the world and crush the head of Satan and defeat the curse of sin. And now she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You can feel like the subcontext of that statement, meaning like maybe this is him. Here he is. Which, is, which just adds to magnify the tragedy, right? That the one that she had hoped might be the one uh, that would defeat sin is actually Cain who ends up taking life rather than saving it and protecting it. The whole thing uh, just serves to magnify the fact that um, things were going to get a lot worse before they got better. Now, having just confessed to plotting my own brother's demise on occasion, and I'm sure it was more than one occasion. Let me tell you something that bothered me more than I ever anticipated. Later in life, uh, my younger brother, two years younger than me, was the starting quarterback on his college football team, the Winona State University Warriors in Winona, Minnesota. And I loved him. I didn't get to go to as many of his games as I would have liked to, but one year... Uh, his team were in the Division II playoffs visiting their longtime rivals, the University of Minnesota Duluth Bulldogs. And when I arrived at the stadium, in the parking lot of the stadium, the Bulldog Booster Club was having a fundraiser, and this is what it was. They had an old broken-down car in the parking lot, which they had used spray paint to graffiti the colors of Winona State and put the Winona State uh, logo on the hood. And for about 10 bucks, every Bulldog fan got a chance to take a bat and smash up the car, which is pretty cool, except that uh, the thing that troubled me the most was that on the driver's side of this car 
was written my brother's name and his jersey number. And inside the car, there was a dummy in the driver's seat with a football helmet on, and people were swinging a bat at him. In their fervor, right, in their excitement for a playoff win, they were literally attacking an image of my brother. And it took my breath away. The story that we just read is, the story is that at, at the time of sacrifice, God was pleased with Abel's offering and not with Cain's. A lot of debate about why that is. It's not really clear why, but that's not the point. The point is Cain is angry and who he's angry at is God. God has not accepted his offering and yet Cain knows that he can't destroy God and so instead he sets about to destroy someone who bears God's image. Remember in Genesis uh, chapter 1 verse 27 it says that in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And Cain, and Cain says, uh, Cain, Cain, uh, that, that's embedded in his understanding that humans have a special and unique worth because we were created in God's image. We were created, as, a, as the Psalms say, a little bit lower than the angels and crowned with glory. That our presence throughout creation is God's signature on what he has made, on his good work. And we've been placed here uh, amongst his creation to point back to who he is and his good care for us. And to care for his creation is another way to reflect back on his goodness to one another uh, to show forth the image of the author and the creator of life and all of his creation. And Cain says, this is what I think of your image. Our culture, uh, we our, our culture owes its idea of human rights. Our culture owes its idea of universal human rights to this theological premise that we are created in God's image. It is difficult to find an explanation for the value of human rights without it. The Israeli atheist historian Yuval Harari confesses that if one does not believe in what he calls the Christian myth about God and creation and souls, then there's no basis for equality in rights. He says, homo sapiens have no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. And yet, we all intuitively know that human life is intrinsically more valuable than a hyena. And yet, without this deep uh, anchoring explanation of the image of God, without this deep understanding that each human is created to bear our creator's image. Philosophers and ethicists are left scrambling for some sort of explanation for why we know that human life is valuable. Explanations that always end up leaving out whole categories of image bearers. Whole categories of people that either, by I either incidentally or intentionally um, can be treated as less than human, less human than other categories of people, whether these are unborn people or elderly 
people or disabled or incapacitated people, uh, the poor, the powerless, the other party. However we categorize and say, this is what gives someone value. If it's less than the image of God, then someone gets left out. If Genesis 4 tells us anything, it's that each of these, every category of image bearer, are truly our brothers and our sisters. Every human bears the image of God. And at the heart of wanting to destroy an image bearer is the rejection of God himself. At the heart of our hatred for another person is self-worship, right? Taking for ourselves and taking into our own hands the giving and the taking of life. The, the giving of permission that you deserve to live and you don't. And this business is only God's business. And so murder, what is it? It is rebellion against God and the destruction of his image. That's the theological explanation. How does it happen? How do you get there? Jesus pushes us towards the heart of God behind the sixth commandment in his Sermon on the Mount. I'll read uh, a few verses from Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, whoever says, raka, will be liable to the hell of fire. One of my lifetime best friends was an immigrant from Great Britain. And while I always thought that he was hilarious, I've only since discovered that a lot of what he said um, was more profane than I ever realized. <laughs> what I chalked up to be sort of funny English Brit Britisms, right, uh, were actually um, obscenities that were getting lost in cultural translation, right? We spoke the same language, but in, in Great Britain, that would have been an awful thing to say. And I just thought, oh, that's cute. And that seems to be the case here in Matthew chapter 5 as well. If, if I, I, as I understand it, if I were actually to try to find a word to capture uh, the profanity and the contempt of this Greek word, raka, that Jesus is saying someone would say about another person, if I were actually to choose a word in our language that carried that same kind of weight and obscenity, then uh, it would most certainly bump this sermon's rating from PG into PG-13, if not make it rated R, right? Which is apparently how it works. A few days ago, one of my kids was explaining to me the, pro the progression of movie rating, how, uh, you know, based on how many and which swear words are included in the script, along with other content included, uh, you kind of get bumped deeper and deeper into this rating system, Right? The more you leave in, uh, the more you, you put in the script, the deeper you go into the rating system, or someone might say, the deeper into depravity, right? Jesus isn't 
satisfied with simply restating the sixth commandment, but he wants his hearers uh, both to be confounded with their inability to keep it and to be drawn towards God's heart behind it. And so he describes in his talk of the sixth commandment a similar progression, right? A progression that goes deeper and deeper into rebellion against a God who created us. Cain didn't start out a murderer. Genesis 4 begins as a story about a rough day at church when two boys bring their offering. That's like an after-school special, right? But by the end of it, it's a horror movie with blood spilled all over the ground. How did they get there? Remember, Genesis 4, 6 and 7 says that Cain was angry. And God says to him, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And that's right where Jesus starts when he starts talking about the sixth commandment. He says, anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. And I'm leaving, I, I'm, I think all of this applies to brothers and sisters, but I'm leaving that brother language in there because remember the first one, the first murder was a brother. Remember we're talking about our siblings. He says, anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Uh, neither passage, Genesis 4 or Matthew chapter 5, uh, suggests that anger itself is a sin. There's plenty of examples of righteous anger in the scriptures. Jesus rebukes Peter's foolishness and says, get behind me, Satan. I think that's an angry statement. Peter, uh, Jesus flips over tables in the temple and, uh, and shoes out the money changers. God is angry at sin and injustice. We hear that again and again in the prophets there. Is such a thing as appropriate or righteous anger? I think there's room for me to be hurt and angry about people swinging a baseball bat in an image of my brother. It was a negative experience. And anger is a negative emotion. But Jesus suggests that what comes next, what you do with that negative emotion is what is critical. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. So it makes anger sound like a crossroads where we get a chance to decide what we'll do next. God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door. Cain's already angry, but what comes next is at issue. And so there's this progression, a progression from anger into the next thing, an inertia or a pull of unchecked anger that pulls us down in the wrong direction. Jesus suggests that anger that lingers undealt with in our heart becomes anger that comes out on our tongue. He says, whoever insults his brother, this is his description of that sort of next step in that progression. You see, I think embedded in this is the, is the truth that there's a difference between a conflict and a confrontation in, where, in which I say to someone or someone says to me, you hurt me. And an insult in which someone says, you are stupid. There's a progression there. You have entered a realm, not just of talking about an event or an action or a sin, but you're, you're, you're entering a realm where you're questioning a person. Not just an action, but uh, my, my, my question insults, my, my insult questions your character. I question your motivations. 
I question your intentions. I'm drawing conclusions about where your heart was at, and I start to measure and question your worth. And that's sin. Because everyone created in the image of God has infinite inherent worth. Jesus' instruction that follows this passage, he's talking about the uh, the Sixth Commandment, and later in chapter 5, he, his next step is to suggest that uh, what follows our identifying that we're angry is reconciliation, to pursue another person, rather than letting that thing burn in my heart, the, uh, but to go to a person and have a conversation and, and, and pursue being reconciled. And what Jesus recognizes is that the easiest way to keep hating on someone else and believing the worst about them is to avoid them. So you don't talk to them and then you get to just keep being angry at the image of them and the caricature of them and the motivations that you have created for them in your mind and in your heart. You can continue to believe the insults that you're feeding yourself about them because you're having no interaction with that person. But when you talk to another person, when you listen to someone else, when we are face-to-face, we're reminded of each other's humanity. When we meet one another, we're confronted by the fact that this person who I'm so angry at has beauty because they're created in the image of God. And that interaction, that confrontation also reminds me that I have sin, that I have contributed to this thing. I'm also to blame. This is what I think can be so sinister about social media. The impression that we're interacting with others while in fact we're really still siloed in in separate places and responding to only caricatures of other people. One-dimensional versions of other people on on a one-dimensional issue. We're going to talk about this thing so that I can categorize you in this way and respond to you. I think if there's one practical thing to say, it is... uh, to be mindful of where we, what we do for input. What are we inputting into our hearts and into our minds? If we are weaning ourselves only on the language of movies and media and talk radio, uh, we will be weaning ourselves on a language that is designed to insult and to hurt, and that will become our native tongue. That'll become the script that we use as we process our life. But... If the language of the scriptures is what we feed ourselves. And I might say even good literature and great songwriting and good poetry and other things that are beautiful and show forth the fact that their creators are created in God's image. uh, Then we'll have better options for language and response in the tapes that are playing in our heads. If we feed ourselves truth, uh, then we'll have truth to choose from when it comes time to respond. Certainly what we put in has a tendency to be what comes out. And Jesus says that whoever says, Raka, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And that term Raka, as I suggested before, we translate it you fool, is an obscenity that goes beyond an insult. It's entering into what Uh, commentators call contempt. Dallas Willard says, contempt is a kind of studied degradation of another person. In contempt, I don't care 
if you are hurt or not, or at least that's what I say. You're not worth consideration one way or another. The effect of contempt is always to exclude someone, to push someone away, to leave someone else isolated. When I indulge my anger, when I let it simmer in my heart, when I go to anger for refuge, right? If that's the place that I go to find solace and comfort, if, if anger is my strength, if I allow a negative emotion to, to be the place that I go and it starts to take root and I begin to question the worth of other people, other people created in God's image, when I allow insult to be my language and the tape that plays in my head, the internal tape that I play in my heart and my mind as I go throughout the day, if insult is my language of humor, that's what I laugh at, and if insult is my language for self-defense, and if insult is my language for self-justification, then causing harm to others will begin to be my solution. Causing harm to others will be the way that I protect myself. And causing hurt in other places will be my prescription for my own broken heart when I've been hurt. In his commentary on Matthew, N.T. Wright warns, if you are the sort of person who sneers at everybody and calls them names, the fire inside you may eventually become all that's left of you. As Gehenna which is the word that we have translated as hell, but Gehenna was actually the name of a smoldering garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. N.T. Wright is suggesting that uh, what might be left of you is uh, a smoldering garbage dump. So what do you do? What do you do if that's you? What do I do if that's me? What does God say to those of us whose default language has become to burn with anger and insult others throughout the years? What if we've got years of practice in this? What about those of us who have been so hurt by other people that anger has become our safe place? What about those of us who have actually been party to the taking of another human life, maybe an unborn life? Someone else created in the image of God that somewhere along the way in our process and growth, we decided it was okay to exclude a brother or a sister who we decided did not deserve our keeping. You can sense that kind of burning contempt in Cain's famous question to God. Am I my brother's keeper? It's a question that the rest of the Ten Commandments seem to have something to say about. The rest of the, uh, the good words say, uh, instruct us about how to honor our brother or sister's spouse. How to honor their possessions. How to honor their reputation. How to keep them well. But am I my brother's keeper is, all, is most certainly a question that Jesus answers emphatically with his life and his death and his resurrection. Jesus endured insult and isolation and exclusion on the cross for us. The murder of Jesus Christ was, was the attempt to extinguish the exact embodiment of God. It was 
the exact embodiment of what every murderer is attempting to do, which is erase the image of God from creation. An attempt to reject and destroy the, uh, the God who created us in his image and enthrone ourselves instead. But unlike Cain and you and me who take life and destroy worth in an attempt to, dis- to justify ourselves, Jesus gave his life to justify ours. Jesus, the exact imprint of God's image, gave us his life and his blood. And in his blood is forgiveness. In his resurrection, there is confidence that death has been undone. Even the death that we have dealt to one another in our hearts and in our speech and in our actions. What we have done to one another does not have the final word. He does. What an incredible hope we have in Christ. My friends, uh, we all have said Raka in our hearts. And if I could say anything to you this morning, if you are asking, what then can I do? How can I be saved? I would say, Run to Jesus.